this episode of Lawrence Talks. I am joined by Douglas County DA Charles Branson, who is the incumbent in this year's Democratic primary. In this episode, I asked Branson about the changes he has made and hopes to continue during his time as DA, his views on the scope of the DA's office, and ending cash bail, among many other topics. The Lawrence Talks podcast is produced in part thanks to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and the KU Philosophy Department. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening, and enjoy. Welcome to this episode of Lawrence Talks, a podcast dedicated to exploring local events and introducing philosophical and humanities topics to the general public. I am your host, David Tamez. Today, we continue our coverage of state and local elections. Uh, I would like to welcome a Democratic candidate for district attorney, Charles Branson. Charles, thank you for joining me today. David, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm very happy to do this and uh, glad that uh, you've taken interest in our race. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it's there's a selfish part of me where it says uh, I'm very interested in politics, as I, I would think most people would be. I, I like talking to people about about their views and about their ideas, and especially candidates and and in, in, in these types of local races. And so, I like to begin our conversation with, with keeping in mind that with COVID, you may have had a limited opportunity to get to meet people, to get uh, to get around to know people. Uh, and for people to know you. And I imagine that there are a number of new voters uh, in this election. So I'd like to give uh, you an opportunity to uh, speak a little bit about who you are, who Charles Branson is uh, as the person, um, and speak to your experiences and a little bit about the, the values that you bring to to the office. Okay. Well, thank you. I, you know, I, I suppose we all kind of start out with our origins, you know, where we came from. I was born and raised in Hutchinson, Kansas. My dad was a firefighter for, for most of his career, then, then ran a small business, um, went to Hutchinson High School and Hutchinson Community College, then transferred up to, to KU to, to finish my undergraduate work. Um, now, I was a kid that was in high school that I didn't really know necessarily what I wanted to do and didn't have a whole lot of plans and thought I'd just probably do a lot of manual labor for the, most of my life until my dad actually had a heart attack on the job. Uh, when I was helping him work. And, um, you know, he's a guy that worked hard all his life that, that, you know, did a lot of, you know, fire department, you know, manual labor. His, his business after that was a lot of manual labor. And I looked at that, I thought, well, dang, you know, you know, your back's going to get out on you at some point in time type of thing. So I thought, you know, I better go to school and try to figure out what I can, I can do there and, and what I can learn and, and try to create a career for myself. So I was the first college uh, graduate in my family. Uh, so went to, like I said, Hutchjuka, worked my way through uh, Hutchjuka while I was working for a, a local bank and then came up here, did the same thing, walked down the hill on a Sunday from uh, school business, 
where I graduated, and then walked into law school on a Monday, uh, the very next Monday as a summer starter at KU Law School. So uh, while I was doing that, um, uh, living life here, I, I met my wife. We actually worked together at a, at a place and headed off and got married while I was in law school, and she was a student teacher. So uh, we were probably uh, the poor of the poor kind of at the moment. Uh, uh, you know, student teachers go, don't get paid much, and uh, uh, certainly law students don't get paid very well. And so, you know, we, uh, we uh, made our way along, and as we kind of started having life experiences of our own, as she became a, a teacher in the district and I graduated from law school, uh, we decided, you know, Lawrence was a pretty darn good place to be. Uh, we had some limited experiences traveling around and everything and thought Lawrence and Douglas County was really kind of the place we wanted to live and raise our family. So uh, we've been doing that for the last 26 years. Um, we have uh, a senior in high school and a freshman, well, I guess now a sophomore in college uh, that uh, we've enjoyed raising and watching them grow, uh, doing all the sports things and everything like that. You know, so first and foremost, you know, I, I'm really kind of a, a family. If, if somebody asks me who I am, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a husband and a dad, really. Career-wise, um, after law school, I really was in, uh, enthralled with, with helping people. Uh, I enjoy working with people. And so I really uh, wanted to find a career and a path that allowed me to do that, and that was the legal path. So uh, straight out of law school, I opened up my own office in town. Uh, throughout my shingle, if you will, had clerked for some attorneys in town, talked to them about getting opportunities to take on some cases and doing those types of things, and uh, opened my own office and uh, hoped for somebody to walk in the door. Fortunately, they did. I um, started doing a little bit of uh, civil litigation and criminal litigation. I did uh, some small business clients and um, did everything from landlord-tenant work to divorce cases. Um, but, but throughout most of that, uh, most of my career, I did quite a bit of uh, uh, criminal defense work, and that's what ultimately led to me running for district attorney. Uh, you know, I ended up uh, uh, deciding that there were changes in the system that I'd like to see made, and, and ultimately um, decided to throw my hat in the ring and ran uh, for election the first time in 2004, uh, had a primary uh, and then uh, won the uh, general election and took office in uh, January 2005. I definitely, as a, as I told you before before we started, uh, identify with the low teaching wages for student teachers and definitely identify with trying to live off of a limited, very limited income. I'd like to, uh, even though you've been you're you're an incumbent, I still like to uh, ask this question: When you first ran, what sort of things at the time? compelled you to to run and uh and and seek that office well you know at the time it was a very different time for prosecution and defense work back then our, our system has changed so incredibly much in the almost 16 years that i i've been here you know we talk now about diversions and alternatives to incarceration and doing those types of things. And, and frankly, if you would have talked about those things running for DA uh, 16 years ago, you probably wouldn't have had a prayer uh, hmm. because everything was tough on crime, uh, making, making um, criminals pay. Uh, you know, it was very kind of one way, uh, very, very narrow uh, process. Even though it was that way back then, I still saw a system that I felt like really needed to change. 
And back then, uh, Kings County, Seattle, Washington, you know, they were doing a lot of things with what's what's called community prosecution. And I became very, very interested in the, the, the concept of community prosecution. So I really viewed the system back then as a system that was really about case processing. It was about charging the case, getting a, a conviction of the case, and moving on to the next case. And as I represented defendants, I recognized the fact that, you know, we really weren't doing anything to fix the underlying problems, why people were coming into the system. The prosecutor's office isn't about social work, but it should be about problem solving. And that really became one of my, my mantras when I first run is we have to change the district attorney's office to a problem solving office. And so that really became my goal. I wanted to, to look at a I wanted to create an office where we weren't worried about whether or not a conviction was necessarily achieved, but we needed to have an office where we were looking at, was this case being resolved in the best interest of everybody involved? Was the offender being held accountable in some meaningful way? And have we given some form of justice, satisfaction, fairness, acknowledgement to the victim in the case to make sure that we have actually solved or attempted to solve the problem that brought these people to the criminal justice system to begin with. And so one of the, I think currently the conversation around our community right now is seeking widespread change, not only towards uh, the the DA's office, but uh, in other aspects of uh, local governance, even though, so you've been, you're, as, as I mentioned, you're, you're, the incumbent, you've been in office for, uh, I think, going on 16 years now. How do you convince voters that are looking for change that uh, you can bring that to to the office? You can bring the sort of change that that they're looking for. Well, and that's a, that's a great question. You know, but I, I think the simplest thing to say with it is look at my record. Um, we have evolved this office over the years uh, to do a lot of different things than when the office. A lot of different things than, than what the office was when I first to, took over. You know, we've continued to adapt and change the office to make the community safer by offering more options for people involved in the criminal justice system uh, while trying to keep the, the public safe. You know, we if, if you look at our record of how we've modified outcomes in our community, I think it's pretty impressive. We started in 2017 with creating our first behavioral health court in the community. Now, this was a court that was designed to try to keep people with serious mental health issues out of our criminal justice system. You know, actually, at the time, they're involved in the mental health court or the behavioral health court. They've already entered the criminal justice system. But the, the point of the program is how do we get these people treatment and access to resources without making their situation worse? So how can we make sure that their, their needs are being met, that we've attempted to break the cycle of them coming into the criminal justice system while keeping our community safe. So we created the Behavioral Health Court, which was an opportunity to divert people out of the criminal justice system with a structure that that encourages um, participation in their treatment program. So if they are successful in doing that, we take away the possibility of a conviction. You know, if, if they are successful through the Behavioral Health Court program, their case is ultimately dismissed. So they do not have a criminal conviction that could affect their housing later on, their employment later on, or even their access to uh, vital um, public assistance funds. 
that could happen if if they're convicted. So, you know, there's one example of things that we've done over time. You know, another one is, you know, we, we've recognized over the years that, you know, how we treat people involved with the criminal justice system that that show up because they have substance abuse issues. We really have to change how we look at those things. And that's evolved over time. 16 years ago, we wouldn't be talking like this, but we are now. We are saying, you know, we have to recognize substance use disorders and substance abuse issues for just exactly what they are. They are addiction issues, not criminal issues. And so, you know, we've done things like created our um, Women's Substance Use Diversion Program, where we are taking women that are in our criminal justice system that are high utilizers of our jail, and we are targeting them to remove them from the jail, get them into meaningful treatment services that have uh, wraparound service components to it for housing, for uh, treatment, for job help all those types of things that could be barriers to them being successful. We pull them out of the system, we put them into a wraparound service program, and then if they're successful, they go through the treatment process, we work on their housing, we work on their employability, we get them into a position that hopefully um, they're not gonna be a high utilizer of the system anymore. And if they're successful through that program, again, we do it with, with the notion that we're going to dismiss their case, they don't have another criminal conviction that could be hampering their ability to recover. So, you know, we've done things like that over the years that I think are really important that shows that we are on the forefront of changing things in our community, that we have the ability to adapt and make things better. And it's not just the programs that we're doing, it's how we treat people within our system that's that's very important. You know, the criminal justice system has, has many moving parts. Uh, we have legislators that create the law. We have law enforcement that go out investigating the force. We have prosecutors that file the cases. We have defense attorneys. We have judges. We have adult criminal justice services. All those things are components of the criminal justice system. You know, but as, as a prosecutor, I've got to recognize our role in the criminal justice system and the creating of this systemic racism that we've had for hundreds of years. And we have to be able to adapt and, and change our system where it serves everybody in the public equally. You know, I recognized years ago that for Black Lives to Matter, we had to do more than just say it, we had to take action. And so one of the actions we took was I created a implicit bias training program for every person in our office. And to date, every person in our office has gone through the six-hour training program to try to recognize how bias can creep into our work and we have also joined the Governmental Alliance on Race and Equity to work with members of our community to address our policies and procedures in our office to make sure that we're being, uh, you know, to make sure that we are intentionally practicing equity in our office every day in the things that we do. So when you, when you talk about somebody that's been here for a long time, that's true, I have been. But we continually try to change and evolve to meet the needs of our community. And I think our record shows that we have a history of doing that and that we uh, continue to try to push forward on those things. Um, you know, we're also looking at a new restorative justice program for our community. That's something that we tried many, many years ago. In fact, I was one of the original stakeholders in um, the early 2000s 
on the Victim Offender Reconciliation Program. That program didn't last. It, it was it was about made it about two years. Uh, it just was a little bit before its time. Didn't have enough. Uh, community buy into it, but we're looking at trying to get that restarted again because we see the need for offenders to be held accountable in a meaningful way, but then also we see the need for our victims to be a part of that process other than just being somebody that's giving evidence, but actually a part of the, the reconciliation process because we know that that creates greater satisfaction in the system. So I think, you know, to answer the, the question a little more succinctly, I suppose is uh, we continue to adapt and change our, our office. And we are always looking for ways to meet our community needs. One, uh, one of the, your, your final comments there brought to mind, I think one of the issues also, again, in, in part in reaction to your, you being the incumbent, is, I guess, how long? It took to for some of these programs to come into place, but you mentioned that in the in your final comment there that one of one iteration one iteration of of policies that that would have helped uh, was started, but there was a lack of I guess support or or by the community and 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 elsewhere. But were there were there similar issues or lack of support and uh, that may have gotten in the way of of creating these other these other policies? Sure. You know, the DA's office has a lot of power, uh, but the reality of it is we, we cannot, we work in conjunction with other parts of our system. You know, we have had a lot of turnover in our judges in Douglas County. Uh, we unfortunately were in a situation where our judges several years ago were not interested necessarily in specialty courts. Uh, Judge Bacorny came on the bench. Uh, she's been on the bench now, uh, I'm trying to think, six or seven years. And we started talking uh, with her about the concept of our behavioral health court. And we started exploring our behavioral health court probably, gosh, uh, over four years ago, we started exploring the creation of a behavioral health court. And what we did to do that is we, along with the court, uh, the judge, uh, our court, our criminal justice services programs started going out and exploring other behavioral health courts around the state and out of state to try to look at see how other people did it. We spent probably 18 months trying to put together different parts of our program, talking with everybody and making sure that we had what we needed to be in, in place to, to start and hopefully create a successful program here. Our first year in that program, we had one participant um, in that program because it was a pilot program. So it really does take a lot of willingness on other players in our community to make a program successful. And I think our behavioral health court program has been extremely successful. You know, we also launched a drug court program this year. It's a pilot program, again, like our drug or our behavioral health court program was. But, you know, our drug court program, we spent over a year trying to put together. It was a con concerted effort with our adult criminal justice services that does our supervision. Uh, our judge, our Judge Huff, who uh, decided that, yes, she wanted to be a part of a program like that. And uh, again, we went around the state to look at other programs, visit those programs, see how they did it. We went to other states to see how they, they did their programs. And our, our district court judge decided on the format of the current pilot program that we have. Um, it's, it's a model patterned after a program in Cass County, Missouri. It's a post-conviction but pre-sentence drug court program. So the person comes into the drug court, they're, they're, they're charged, 
They're screened by a team that includes my office, the district court, uh, defense attorneys, and our treatment providers to see if they'd be appropriate and available for the program. Uh, then uh, if they're allowed into the program, then they go through uh, the treatment program. It's monitored by the drug court judge uh, because it is a court-facilitated program. And if they succeed in that program, then we allow them to withdraw their plea in that case, and when we dismiss the charges against them. So it's, a, it's an incentive-based program by uh, having charges out there, having a potential uh, conviction or sentence to serve uh, as being the incentive for being able to uh, participate and complete the program. Uh, but it's a new pilot program, and it, it had to come together uh, not just by the will of our office, but by the willingness of our district court judge to say, yes, I will be in charge of this program. And then the, the participation of our adult criminal justice service providers, and frankly, also the county, um, because the commissioners had to authorize the funds to make this program work. So we have to collaborate with everybody in our community to get these programs up off the ground and put them on the right path to success. Thanks, Charles. Sort of been talking about around a certain issue or another question that, that I have for you, and that's regarding the, the scope of, of the DA's job and and what what it all what all encompasses for you, and 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 uh, what you think its its limits are. Uh, so that's that's the, the question I have for you now. Is uh, what do you consider to be the scope of the county DA, um, and might it include, uh, from your perspective, uh, uh, previously and, and going forward, uh, an activist uh, for certain policies at the maybe state legislature uh, level that you find that are con uh, conducive to bettering our communities? Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the scope of the job. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you know, th there are there are literally hundreds of, of sections in our Kansas statutes that reference the duty of the county or district attorney. Um, we have a really wide ranging um, set of obligations under our state statutes. We are the exclusive jurisdiction for felony cases in Douglas County. No other court can handle felony cases uh, except for the district court, our office. Uh, we have uh, uh, joint jurisdiction over misdemeanor matters, but we are also the exclusive uh, uh, stop for uh, juvenile, offen juvenile offender cases, uh, child needed care cases where a child's been abused or neglected, Care and treatment cases where somebody is suffering from a mental health crisis and they're no longer able to, to make health care decisions for themselves or, or they're a danger to themselves or the community. Uh, we handle fish and game cases and we handle consumer protection uh, cases. So we have kind of a wide ranging scope of things that we end up doing. You know, as for, for advocating for policy change at state level, I absolutely believe it's it's county attorney or district attorney's obligation to do that when we see changes in the system that need to be made. Sometimes those changes are based upon maybe a ruling that the Supreme Court has made of interpretation of a law, and we have to go to the legislature and advocate for a change in a statute to make sure the law is being carried out the way it's intended. Uh, sometimes that is advocating for new laws. You know, I, I've had the occasion on many times to go to the state uh, legislature and um, be the sponsor or supporter of a particular bill to create a new law uh, or 
to um, modify an existing law. And sometimes we, we also serve as an advisory role, and we will go to the state uh, legislature and comment on how particular things in the law work. Uh, we've done that on many occasions. I've done that as the, um, the president of the Kansas County and District Attorneys Association. I've gone to the, the state capitol and, and informed them what our position is, or had dialogue with our state legislatures on how particular laws work uh, or what the reality of, of a particular law is at the district court level. So I absolutely believe that it is our, our role to be uh, an advocate for policy change at the state level, um, to um, make sure that we are addressing with our legislators the will of our community, because I think that's one of our roles as a as a public representative. And one of the one of the I think policies that have been I think most talked about in in this election, at least from my from my understanding and from my my observation uh, of some of the forums that have been that have taken place is the ending of, of cash bail and cash bonds. And there's been some question as to just how exactly that can take place, um, what the limitations are. Um, and so I wanted to put that to you as, as well as what's in what sense can, uh, are you in favor of ending cash bail one, I guess. And then two, uh, in what sense can uh, in your, in your power, in your role as, as district attorney end cash cash bail. Well, I keep hearing the claim that we can, that the DA has the power to end cash bill. And that's, I mean, frankly, just simply false. Uh, you know, I actually am on the Kansas Supreme Court pre-trial, pre-trial justice task force. And our, our bail and bond system is one of the things that we're currently studying. You know, the DA can single-handedly end that all by themselves. There is state statutes that would have to be changed and a state constitution that would have to be amended um, and simply put, to amend the state constitution, it takes a constitutional amendment that has to be passed by the House and the Senate by two-thirds majority, and then it has to be put to a public vote in a statewide election. So just simply saying that we can end cash bail is, is, is inaccurate. But what we can do is what we've done here in Douglas County. We started looking at it several years ago. How do we make the system fairer? Because we recognize that the bail system works against minorities and the poor, uh, because two people that can be changed, charged with the same crime, just based upon financial status alone, one person may be in jail and the other one may not be. And that, that's patently unfair, uh, and, and we need to work on ways to change that. So I think there's going to have to be changes at the state level with our state law and our constitution. But we do have some things that we're trying to work around to make sure that uh, there are more fair ways to do this in the system. Over three years ago, we started working with our adult criminal justice services and our district court judges to create a pretrial release and bond supervision program. That program is aimed to try to take the uh, disparities of a cash bail system out of the system. You know, our state constitution says that, you know, everybody shall be released on appropriate um, sureties, which is the basis of our cash bail system. But what it it doesn't say is that we can't put people out on their own recognizance. Uh, We can put people out on what we call an OR bond, own recognizance bond, meaning that if we release you, if the court releases you, uh, you essentially sign a promissory note with the judge. 
um, saying that you promised to pay the court X amount if you fail to appear. Well, that's also not necessarily a very satisfying system. So we started working with our criminal justice uh, providers, our judges, and we started looking at our pretrial release and bond supervision program. And we created this program three years ago to, to take the cash thing out of the system. So the program now is set up where if somebody comes into custody, uh, they're arrested by law enforcement, they end up being charged by us. Uh, before the judge sets a bail, they're going to be um, reviewed with a pretrial risk assessment tool that creates a level of supervision for the person in lieu of a cash bond. So we have created a system now that allows approximately about 80% of the people that are arrested to be released without posting any type of cash bond in our system. Now, they may have to call in periodically to court services um, or to pretrial release services to check in and, and make sure they're doing what they need to be doing. It has different levels of supervision. If somebody is maybe arrested on domestic violence case, and we want to make sure that that person is not going to bother the victim, we may release that person without cash bond, but we may require that person to have maybe some type of GPS monitoring or something like that occurs. That's all done at no cost to them. Uh, that's done through the Adult Criminal Justice Services Program. But it's things that we can do to say, hey, instead of having this person sit in jail pretrial without being convicted, we're better served by having them back out in the community with their family members, if that's appropriate, or at their job, and having them under some type of supervision as opposed to just uh, posting what can be patently unfair as, as a cash bond. Now, certainly cash bonds have their place. Um, the court has an obligation to make sure that public safety is protected and that a person is going to appear for court when they're supposed to. And in, in instances of very serious cases, a cash bond may be the most appropriate thing to have. And then the, the next, the, the sort of... Uh conversation and issue that's that's been around that's been going around or been discussed as well is this attention to data gathering data sharing and and uh, data analysis in terms of making ensuring that our prescriptions generally speaking whether whatever uh, office it may be is based on the best available data that uh, that we have and so but at the same time Data can only take us so far, uh, it, it, I'm not, and that's not to diminish its importance. It's very important in determining what we should should do in particular cases. But the other thing, the other thing that is very important in terms of connecting the data to particular prescription items or particular actions or policies, are is a discussion or consideration of the values uh, that we want to represent in our decision making. And essentially, what we think is the right thing to do in, in particular, particular cases. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about that in the context of this, this conversation about data analysis. What sort of values and, and uh, maybe general idea of, of what the right thing to do is do you hope to represent and uh, implement into your, into your decision-making as, as a DA? Well, I'll, I'll be honest. You know, we, over the years, our system has been horrible about gathering data. Um, our system has really been designed to record 
and and that's about it. And when I mean record, I, I mean, you know, it's just really keeping track of who's who's in the system without any analysis of why they're in the system or how long they've been in the system or what their, uh, their racial makeup or character is. And so it's we are just now really learning how to use data. And I think it's something that's really going on all across the country. We're being asked to look at our data to make informed decisions about what our policies and practices are uh, and have our data drive our policies and practices a little bit more. Now, that doesn't mean data should be the end-all be-all because we really have to be also focused on uh, what it means to, to have justice in a particular case. And that shouldn't be whether or not somebody fits into a particular demographic or they have um, a, a certain data score or anything like that, if you will. <clears throat> you know, I, I think we have to use that data to really inform our, our policies and procedures with the idea of, are we using our data to ferret out any inequities in the system? So does our data reveal that how we go about doing our, our work is creating inconsistencies or inequities. And that's where I really think that we should be focusing on and using our data. I, I have a firm belief that every case that we charge, every case that comes into the system, deserves an outcome based upon the facts of that case. Really not anything else. So that means, you know, you could have two cases that have the exact same charges. But should those two cases have the exact same outcome, my answer is no, they should not. Because the facts and circumstances in one case that give rise to a particular charge may be different than the facts and circumstances in the next case, even though the charges are, are similar. So I really think we have to balance the use of our data to try to make sure that we're not creating any inherent inequities in our system and then balancing that information with the facts of a particular case to make sure that, that justice is being done. You know, at the end of the day, we should be looking at, are we solving the problems that created this case? You know, have we held the offender accountable in some meaningful way? And have we restored the victim in the best way we possibly can? And I really believe that if we do those two things, we, we lessen the likelihood that those participants in the criminal justice system will be back in front of us again in the future. And this, this next question uh, has to do with the relationship between the DA and the public. And, and, and again, this is a sort of a general statement about our, our politicians and, and their relationship to, to their constituents and the communities that they represent. And like any other politician or elected official, uh, the first check on on the power and the direction of any political office is uh, public opinion, and and that that's it's very important and and it's uh, and it's a very good check uh, on on political power. At the same time, there should also be an evaluation of whether public opinion is fully. Uh, fully informed or is is uh, is right and and so there's the DA has to sort of uh, or any elected official has to balance um, you know the pressure of public opinion 
while at the same time basing their decision on what they know um, and in a particular case. So how do you, how do you one, uh, balance that relationship uh, or address that relationship? And two, how do you uh, hope to, I guess, address the, maybe the gaps in, in, in knowledge that maybe steering public opinion in a particular way as DA? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The, um, you know, the, the balance of, of the public relationship with the DA's office is really kind of a delicate one. But, you know, we elect our district attorneys to do a job, and we elect them based upon how we think they're going to do that job and what values and beliefs they hold in how they're going to carry out that work. You know, we really do not elect uh, our, our public officials to tell them how to do any particular case. And I think that's a distinction that really has to be made. Um, you know, we often find ourselves being pressured one way or the other because of a particular case or a particular issue. Uh, there, you know, we 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 read the press, we get we get letters, we get emails about uh, what people think should happen in a particular case. But we also have to know that the public is generally not informed of all the facts and circumstances of a particular case. Law enforcement investigations by their very nature are, are closely held uh, because, uh, you know, like I said, by their very nature, they're closely held. You know, they are designed to, to ferret out information, try to figure out if somebody is guilty of a crime or not. And they, they go through a process of court appearances that allow that information to be put out in a fair and legal manner. Um, we certainly would want, want, for example, all the criminal investigation records in a particular case just given to the public because there will be things in there that may or may not be accurate that have not been proven yet in a court of law, have not been measured by our rules of evidence that are designed to create fairness in our judicial system. So we know right out of the gate that uh, when we get information or public input on particular cases, that the public uh, necessarily does not know the entirety of the case. And we have to balance um, our ethical rules because we have certain constraints that we cannot make comments on cases outside the courtroom. Uh, those comments uh, that we make outside the courtroom have to be tempered not to potentially sway the public one way or the other on a particular person's guilt or culpability. Uh, so we have ethical constraints that we also have to operate under. So we have to try to be as transparent and forthright as we can with our criminal justice system. We have to make sure that we have access to public information. Uh, you know, anything that we file the criminal complaint can be found in the clerk's office that will tell somebody exactly what a person has been charged with. We have a process in place that the criminal affidavit that leads to a person's charges, it's a sworn affidavit by law enforcement that details what they believe the person did to be responsible for criminal charges. That can be requested from our clerk's office. 
Um, typically, that will be redacted by the court for sensitive information or information the court feels should not be uh, in the public eye. Uh, but we have to make sure we maintain certain ways like that, that the public can trust what is being done. And we also have to educate the public on how the system works. We really do a poor job of that as a criminal justice system as a whole. We say the public is sure welcome to come down here and watch a court case, and our courtrooms are open to the public. Well, generally, COVID 19's changed that a little bit. <laughs> um, now we do some of our hearings by YouTube, of all things. But, um, you know, the, the public generally doesn't fully understand necessarily how our criminal justice system works. And we have to do a much better job of teaching those civics lessons of the role of the prosecutor, the role of the defense attorney, the role of the judge, um, whether the judge is going to be the decider of the case or whether the judge is going to be the, the procedural uh, guidepost for a jury on a case. We have to make sure the public understands the roles and responsibilities and to the extent we can, the laws and the nuances of the laws that we work with. So our job has to be better about educating the public about how we go about our work. And that's one of the main things I think we really have to do to maintain that balance. Great, thank you, Charles. And, and one of the, the last few questions I have for you, is sort of in, involves a scenario that, uh, uh, that didn't necessarily hasn't necessarily happened here, but it it, it could happen here. And uh, given uh, Lawrence's demographic, I come uh, from a family of Spanish speakers. My my wife comes from a family, uh, and she speaks Spanish herself. And given I guess given uh, our demographic, there or Lawrence's demographic, there might be some limitations and and maybe some impediments towards ensuring fair. Or adequate representation for so for folks with uh, these language barriers. One example being Spanish, there are certainly more. Um, so th this question is about again, sort of related to your your uh, sort of uh, the scope of the DA uh, and and especially in, in addressing certain these certain these issues, these maybe societal issues or lack uh, gaps in our, our justice system. But uh, this really gets at the the issue of, of fairness and fair representation or adequate representation in our system. In in a particular case that involves that those limitations or that gap in in communicating where lawyers are communicating or unable to communicate with uh, fully for full comprehension of to their uh, clients, what can you as a DA do to address these gaps and that may have lead to these issues of, of regarding fair representation? Well, that's something in a college community we, we have to deal with quite often, actually. Um, you know, you talk about language barriers or cultural barriers that we, we identify being being a major university community and having then um, uh, Haskell Indian Nations University and Baker University here close by. Uh, we, we, get, we get people from um, all walks of life all over our country, all, from all around the world. Um, so first and foremost, you know, as I said earlier, you know, there's different parts of the criminal justice system, and we certainly play a role in that. Um, but to make sure people have adequate representation, you know, we have to be mindful that as a district attorney, we uphold the Constitution of the state of Kansas. And we uphold that Constitution of the state of Kansas, U.S. Constitution also, not only for the victims of a crime, 
but for anybody accused of a crime. So we have to make sure that when we are processing case, we're looking across the aisle and making sure that we believe that that person is getting good, adequate representation. And unfortunately, over the years, we've, we've had occasion to turn around and say, you know, I don't think that uh, that person is getting the right representation they need. And we'll try to address that with an attorney. And if that doesn't work, we've had to address it with the judge before in, in those types of cases and say, hey, I don't think this is happening the way it's supposed to be happening. But, you know, to give, you know, talk about like the language barriers and things like that a little bit. We have had many cases where we have come in where law enforcement's had contact with somebody that is uh, maybe uh, Hispanic, uh, a Spanish speaker, but is from a certain uh, locale in Mexico that has uh, their own twist on uh, the Spanish language. Uh, I can think of a particular case where we had that where the um, victim and the defendant were from a certain mountain region. Um, most of our Hispanic, uh, Spanish translators in our community could not converse with them very well. And we actually had to go out and locate somebody that was fluent in that language that we could have appointed by the court to serve as a translator in those types of cases. And we've, we've done that on on many occasions. We also had to do it with, with other foreign languages that come into our community that sometimes we have to really search around and try to find people that can, can communicate on an appropriate level to where there's a, that we have an assurance that there is a base level of communication, that the basics of our criminal justice system and the ability for a person to um, um, express themselves as a victim or defend themselves as a defendant thoroughly and, and completely because things are being translated appropriately. So that has happened on quite a few occasions. It is typically our job to make sure any victim witness that, that comes into our system has that ability. It's the court's job to make sure that there's somebody available in the courtroom to make sure that those translations uh, are happening um, in a an effective and proficient way. And then our our defense bar, they have resources through the state's state board of indigent defense services um, to help retain and hire people to help their client um, understand what's going on and make sure the communication is being being had um, at an appropriate level. So it really takes all of us in the system working together to make sure those things happen. Um, we have to watch and make sure it's happening on the other side. The other side has to watch and make sure it's happening on ours. The judge plays a role in making sure that those things are, are happening in the courtroom or that uh, a defendant has access to those types of resources. And so one of the, one of the final questions I want to uh, ask you, or the, maybe the final question here is people are voting uh, currently voting right now and, and will will vote over the next few days. Um, and then, at, but at the end of, uh, at, of your term, the, the, uh, whether, if you are successful here, um, how would you, what sort of, by what metric do you hope, uh, folks will, voters will, uh, assess your time in office and your term? What, what sort of metric do you hope to be, uh, measured by? Well, I think, you know, at, at the basic level, you know, they have to be capable, competent, and trustworthy. 
Um, you know, that's borne out by the, the work product that they put out, that their office puts out. And I think that's, you know, just like I said, that's really at the basic level. You know, the, the really the thing I think, you know, when we look at a public servant and the district attorney is a public servant is, is how well do they represent their community? And that, I think, is really the metric that you have to judge DA by or any other elected public official is are they representing their community? Um, do they have the ability to affect change in the system, to um, uh, reflect the interests of their community? Do they have the ability to make sure that uh, the community's concerns are are being met? And so I, I think, you know, that that's that's a pretty wide open measuring stick, if you will. But, you know, the, the community has to see the body of work and the community has to be able to look at that and say, you know, those cases are being resolved with my, with, with the values I hold important in mind. And uh, we need to make sure that we're doing things to reflect uh, that we hear and understand the things that the public wants. Uh, you know, I'll give you, you know, I guess I'll give you kind of an example of that a little bit if I can. You know, we talk a lot about the discretion a district attorney may have. You know, and how we use our discretion is very important. You know, we only charge probably one third of the cases that are sent to us by law enforcement because we're using that power of discretion to say, you know, this case really isn't a criminal case or this case may be better off being resolved in a non-criminal matter. Or we may look at the case and say, you know, this case really does need to be charged. Um, there's a violation of law here, and it's important for this case to go forward. You know, we can look at something as simple as, you know, the the change in our, our drug laws over the, the years and the changes in emphasis on enforcement of those drug, drug laws. You know, our city commission um, a couple of years ago changed the fine for simple possession of marijuana to $1. The city commission did that by uh, input and pressure from community members. They did it after observing that the city of Wichita made those changes. They did it after observing uh, the city of Kansas City, Missouri made those changes. And they reduced that the, the penalty for that to $1. Well, that created a dilemma for me right out of the gate. Because if somebody was charged with simple possession of marijuana at the municipal court level, the result was going to be court costs and a fine of $1. If they were charged with that at the district court level, um, they were facing uh, a much higher court cost. They were facing uh, lab mandatory lab fees that would be assessed by the district court judge. Uh, they were facing a much larger potential for a fine. You know, I have to take into consideration what our community is doing, what our community wants. And in a sense like that, I, I, I turn around and say, look, you know, the community is telling me that this is not how they want us spending our time and our energy in the criminal justice system. And so I had to make the decision of, are we going to prosecute these cases still, given what the city has done uh, on their end at the municipal court level, or are we not? And I made the decision uh, based upon the input to me from our community members and the actions of our city commission and the, the overall consensus of how we deal with these types of cases to turn around and say, we're not going to emphasize these cases anymore. 
this is going to be a case that we are going to try to resolve some other way besides charging that case. And I became the only district attorney in the state to turn around and say, we are no longer going to file simple possession charges on certain drug cases. So I think getting back to the not just being the basics of capable, competent, and trustworthy in how we handle our cases, but do we represent what our community wants out of our elected officials and leaders? And that's how ultimately I think we're judged and should be judged. Well, Charles, before before I let you go, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to say, to sort of give voice or uh, give voice to the sort of things that you think uh, or you hope uh, listeners will take away from from our conversation today. Well, thank you. I, you know, I just, I really believe the district attorney's office is about serving our community. It's about being a problem solver and it's about adapting our office to meet the needs of our community as a whole. And I think that's something that I've done over the last 15 years is to try to meet the needs of our community by adapting to change and making sure that we are being progressive in what we are doing and making sure the community needs are being met in fair and equitable manners. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the people will, will see that I've worked really tirelessly through the years to create the change that they want and expect from our office. And if I'm reelected as district attorney, I will continue our endeavors to do that through creation of new programs, through being innovative, through exercising our ability to work within the system and work with other partners in the communities and our criminal justice system and our judges and our treatment providers to make sure that we are the most progressive office in the state and make sure that we're meeting the needs of our community right here. Great. And if you want to know more about uh, Charles and his, and, his, and his campaign, you can go to Branson4DA.org. Again, that's Branson4DA.org. Uh, Charles, thank you for joining me today and having this conversation with me. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure to talk about these subjects. And thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time on the next episode of Lawrence Talks.